Hey y'all, it is 11.43 Eastern, Friday, November 6th, 2020. We're back. The election's not quite over. Soon. Um, I mean, there are some sources who have already called it for the vice president um, with Decision Desk. Although, I'll be honest, I hadn't heard of them before two days ago. Um, <clears throat> and a part of me is feeling like the networks are waiting to call it until 7 p.m. Eastern so they can get it in prime time. But... Anyway, um, your co-host here, Fred Curtis, along with our wonderful other co-host, Becca Nyberg. Becca, how are you? Yeah, important to, to note exactly the time because things are still changing minute to minute here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the whole, like, if we talk about election results, it could be outdated in like 20 minutes. So we try to always give you that perspective. But recording some of this stuff in real time is actually good because then you can just go back. Like, you're really seeing how narratives change. Um, and almost, I mean, a part of it is like sportification of politics, right? Like even the way we're all talking about this is like, oh, Trump's about to blow a, a 3-1 lead. And it's just like, you know, it's good for entertainment. And it's kind of making it fun. And to be totally honest, like I am getting a lot of uh, comfort in like watching him lose like this. Like a landslide would have been wonderful, but seeing this like slow, painful, like death to his political career I'm not gonna lie, it's very, uh, it's very soothing, uh, and I'm enjoying this. Uh, so it's great. It's like sort of like a little grass. Well, I'm glad you enjoy it now because if it continues to be dragged out with court cases, you know, and things like that that are not thrown out on their face um, because they're completely and utterly ridiculous, which is what we saw yesterday. They're all frivolous. Uh, <laughs> of course they are. <laughs> of course they are. But you know, at least make a colorable claim if you're going to go in there for frivolous. But that has not happened. Um, you know, my lawyer friends are all sharing the meme where the judge says, you know, as a member of this bar, what are you representing to me? Oh, it's non-zero? All right. You know, so that's uh, that's not a place you want to be in as an attorney, having the judge say, as a member of this bar. Wow. <laughs> that's a... Uh, that's that's how you know like your your mom is calling you in for like the talk because she knows she caught you kind of thing. It's just time, bro. It's time. And you got two months to pack your bags. Like you don't have to act like this. Like you still got a good amount of time to be on Air Force One and you know, tweet away. Um anyway, there are some, I think, some things we can start, <clears throat> you know, maybe like have conversations on that have always been true. And like you and I have talked about this a lot, both on this podcast and in private. Um, but I think can definitely like be reaffirmed and probably for like the 1000th time uh, about just politics and the alignment of, of both parties, particularly the base of the Democratic Party. Hey, our show's called The Base. Um, but the, since this was your idea, I, I, we should do, um, we should let you sort of phrase the, phrase the beginning of the convo, I think. Yeah, so yeah, going exactly to the base, right? Once again, we have seen that the minority voters, specifically, you know, the urban black voters in Philadelphia, in Atlanta, um, you know, other cities have been the ones that have saved this, this victory for the Democrats. So, you know, we've, as Democrats, I guess, said that we're the party of minorities, but we're not living up to it. Uh-huh. And, you know, at what point do we say, you know, forget the white agenda, forget that part of it. We're really going to center on minority policies and minority, you know, issues and concerns and problems in a real, 
you know, focused way. And we really are going to make our party the party of the minority, you know, the black voices, the brown voices, Latina, you know, Muslim, you know, um, LGBTQ, all of those minorities. When are we really going to stand up and say to the base of our party, hey, we are actually your party and we recognize we're not just giving lip service to it. Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, I, I, it's it's long overdue, um, and I've, I've I've been saying this for years, uh, and I you know I'm kind of constantly um, ignored, but like I think it's fine to say like black people are the base of the party, and and that doesn't exclude the wonderful work that like a lot of Latino Latina Latinx you know organizations have, which yeah apparently people have problems with the term Latinx because like. You know, there are some Latino working class folks who don't know what that term means, as if like you not knowing what a term means means you're going to vote for the other party or you just can't Google it and find out. Totally different conversation. But anyway, um, like saying saying that one particular demographic is the base of your party doesn't exclude or negate the work that so many other blocks of people do. Like there have been amazing like white women who I've had the pleasure of organizing with, building relationships with. Like I met, you know, two of them on the Ossoff campaign when I worked at. Like I, they are like legitimately mom's mother figures to me. I talk to them like weekly, you know. Um, and I always do this when I train organizers, right? It's just like, you know, one, demographics aren't destiny. And then, you know, like intersectionality does not equal autonomy. And basically what I tell people when I say that, it's just like, you're going to miss out on a lot of wonderful things, a lot of wonderful opportunities in life if you automatically write people off because of, you know, who they are or how they look. Now, with that being said, there is some level of like, you know, skepticism based off history experiences that is totally okay, but you never write folks off just because of what they look like. That's a long way of saying like, yes, that we acknowledge the work that, you know, Native people do with there and get enough credit and like Arizona and Nevada, Native Americans and tribes, they've done some amazing work for decades. And that's part of what's happened in Arizona um, and also in Nevada and some other places, even Colorado, I think, you know, where that got ignored. Um, but in order to, I think, continue to rack up victories to where you can actually sort of enact policies consistently, you have to pay some policy uh, lip service and favorability to the folks that continuously to get you in office. And we just haven't seen that um, really kind of at all. And, and I think that's one of the frustrating things. And my goal, my hope is to like, see a lot of this organizing that's taking place here, take a break over the holidays, get you a nice little Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's in. And it's like, look, when Biden gets uh, inaugurated, like it's right back to it. Like, even if, you know, the Senate is still in Republican hands, like we've given you all so much, we need something back in return. Yeah, I mean, and I will also say, you know, this is part of the problem of, who's running the party, who's at the table. Because if you don't, you know, if you're standing on the shoulders or the backs, as the case may be, of minorities, but you're not actually listening to them, you're not actually adopting what they're saying. And instead, you're taking a somewhat paternalistic or maternalistic, as the case may be. But for these purposes, I'd say more paternalistic approach that you know better, you know what the minorities want, I think that's also problematic. And that's also, you know, an issue that we see, you know, throughout, you know, organizing, you know, let, let's set aside politics, but in organizing where people come to an issue because they are interested in 
you know, racial relations because they've seen on the news the police shootings, um, immigration issues because they've, you know, followed the news about, let's say, the children separated at the border. They come to these issues because they genuinely care, but then don't look to the community affected and instead say, well, obviously my view, you know, me as the white person, is going to take precedent over doing the work, doing the research. You know, if you're interested in, you know, racial justice issues, are you attending the NAACP meeting? They've been working on that for decades. What makes you think, because you came to it today, that you know more than the people working for decades? And I've seen that, you know, in all sorts of levels. Yeah. You know, that we just, you know, are not willing to you know, to subjugate, I guess, our ego, maybe, huh. um, to the people who are actually affected, actually doing the work. Yeah, no, I agree. I think the biggest thing that's, that's frustrating is like, you know, I, you know, I've been doing this work for the better part of a decade, doing it full time for five or six years. And I say it openly, you know, I'm still discouraged by some of the opportunities that I don't even get looked at for. Um, knowing finally, I think I finally gave myself permission a couple of years ago to say, you know, like, I'm good at this. And it's okay to say, that you're really good at something. Um, and the results kind of speak for themselves, you know, like this isn't some, you know, like sort of arrogant type thing. Like I've had the pleasure of you know, managing and working on a lot of races where like what we've been able to do at the ballot box kind of speaks for itself. But to your point, I mean, I think, you know, like I put it to you this way, it's, we have to, number one, if you want to do this consistently, we have to have more Black and brown and indigenous people on senior, as senior level officials on in the DNC, the DTRIP, the DS, so on and so forth, because black, brown, and indigenous people all to a certain extent have some idea and can identify with white people because we are forced to assimilate and understand white society. That cannot be said vice versa, because there's never a time where you know, someone who doesn't have my kind of skin color, like, you know, thinks their life might end in a traffic stop. Like, does every do, does everybody's heart race when they get pulled over by the cops? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, um, and I think on top of that, like, I, to to really like bring this forward, like, I, my first car was a Chevy Impala, um, fast car, tenant windows, absolutely loved it. I went in and once that car was kind of done, I bought a Toyota Camry with no tent for the very reason of I was just getting, I was sick and tired of getting pulled over the, by the cops at the rate I was in that Impala. And it's just like, like that, that is like my life as a black guy with a law degree who like has worked with the national Park. you know, that's still like my reality. And so if we don't take the time to really offer those opportunities to, to people who are the base of the party and been doing this work on the ground. And I think, you know, what we're seeing this week is cool, but like, are we going to make the gains we need to really enact policy changes that help make those people's lives better? And I think that has to be the priority, you know, moving forward in the next couple of years. And in doing so, we have to recognize that not everybody's going to take the same path. Mm. Um, you know, it doesn't require a law degree to sit at the table. Absolutely. It doesn't, you know, it's, gra- it's great that you have one, but it doesn't require that. It doesn't require you know, let's say even a college education in some, in some instances, mm-hmm. you know, to sit at the table, to share experiences, to help shape policy, you know, we need that diversity in view. And it's not even just diversity in skin color, you know, 
black people are not a monolith, white people mm. are not a monolith, mm-hmm. you know, having different experiences within each population is also really, really important to hear what's happening. You know, the black person living in Alabama is going to have a different experience than the black person living in New York City. Facts. And they may have some shared experiences that I as a white person are, am just not going to be, you know, subject to, but they're also going to have different experiences based on education level, geographic location, um, you know, all sorts of other things that play into it. And, you know, by thinking that we have the one black person at the table, that's just, you know, it's ridiculous to think that we're going to get everything that we need to get, you know, out of, you know, let's get all of the, you know, all of the wisdom from the one black person who speaks for all black people. I mean, come on now. That's kind of how it is now, though, especially on a lot of these campaigns. I mean, from the local level to the state to the federal level. And one, one way I think I can really characterize this is that I, I actually did a little bit of a social experiment, <clears throat> excuse me, in early 2019. Uh, and, and I went ahead and I applied to like all the major um, presidential campaigns, you know, Elizabeth Warren, you know, Beto O'Rourke, um, you know, Joe Biden, so on and so forth. I'm not going to name them all. There were 50 million of them, Kamala Harris. Um, and I literally got denied for job as a regional organizing director not an organizing director, not a state director. <laughs> like for people who are sort of familiar with politics, like regional organizing directors pretty much manage field offices. So <clears throat> like in a state like Iowa or South Carolina who have early primaries or caucuses in the case of Iowa, you know, you might have, you know, 12, a dozen field offices around the state that are pod into little regions. Um, that's a job I did with John, when John Ossoff ran for Congress in 2017. Like since then I managed like two campaigns and so on and so forth. But it's like Kirsten Gillibrand like denied me. Like I interviewed and they were like, oh, we decided to go in a different direction. Like Elizabeth Warren did the same thing. Like, and I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm sure these candidates didn't have a say in that, but you know, I did that for a reason. And I'm actually going to write a pretty long form piece on that because it was quite the experience and I think speaks to a lot of the changes we need to have in the DNC. The only campaign I ever heard anything positive back from was Joe Biden's. I, I think there is a reason he came out of the primary. And I think there's a reason he's going to be the next president of the United States. And it's not because he's like this beacon of progressive or black hope. It's just more so, I think he surrounded himself or had an understanding and a concept of who and what drives the Democratic Party. And that's why when I hear people say, oh, the DNC had their preferred candidate or, you know, the DNC is you know, manipulative or doesn't understand what the people want. When you say that, what you're, you are directly disregarding and, you know, uh, pretty much just saying that, you know, older black voters in South Carolina are unintelligent. You're saying that older black voters in the primary who are the base of the Democratic Party, particularly in primaries, um, don't understand the country or don't have an understanding of, you know, what it means to try and move things forward. And I take huge, uh, I take huge issue with that. Or that they're pawns in the democratic machine and that they've been contacted, you know, by the the head honchos of the D- democratic party and said, These, this is our candidate, go mm-hmm. vote for it. Mm-hmm. That's just not, that's just not true. And so I, I think there's, there's, look, man, there, there's so much nuance to this and, and such a a level of deep response. I mean, like I was interviewing for an organizing director position in a state, I won't name it. Uh, for the Biden campaign, I, I think I first talked to them in May. It was May 29th. I had like five phone calls, five little phone interviews. The last one was on like August 28th. 
And I never heard back. And it's just like, like, this is the issue, right? And like last summer, you know, last year, I was fortunate enough to get an opportunity with, uh, with organizing core. And uh, I think that was crazy. We trained, you know, almost a thousand organizers in a lot of these battleground states. And I think a lot of those young people are part of big reason why we've been able to do what we what we've been able to do but uh, I, like as you said it starts at the level of empowering hiring training people who reflect the demographics of the base of the party and and, and to that end it's not just black people right we need more you know uh latinx people we need more native and indigenous people we don't see them nearly enough represented um on campaigns with the local state or federal level but if there is a if there are ways to improve after this which there are um I think that would be the one I would highlight the most. Well, and also let's not just look to the political people. Mm. You know, why in organizing are we only looking towards the people who have political experience already? Yeah. You know, that's a very small circle. That's a very small bubble. You know, do you really understand what's going on in the community that you're going to instead of looking for people in the community to join the political campaign? You know, it seems like we're going backwards. Let's find the political person to go to the community instead of let's find the community person to join the politics. Yeah. You know, if you really want a connection with the community, you really want to know what this community, whether it's a town, a state, you know, a group of people, why wouldn't you be going to the people in that community to, to ask the question? Why are we looking for some, you know, white savior or otherwise to come in on their, you know, on their horse and be like, I've got, you know, rural Georgia, you know, they'll come with me. I mean, give me a break. That's why, you know, to take, and to take, you know, Georgia as an example, Stacey Abrams, who was incredibly steeped in the problems with the gubernatorial campaign and the results and said, how do I fix this? And she did that, you know, and probably not perfectly, when is anybody perfectly, but she understood the issues because she was a member of that community. So how are we not lifting up those people who are already working within their community and maybe not on such a great, you know, a high level as Stacey Abrams is doing, but why aren't we lifting up those people? Why aren't we bringing them into into the fold? You know, we're relying them as the base, but we're not bringing them into the, the tent where the decisions are being made. Yeah. I think a lot of that is just, I think people's desire to have these singular figures to prop up and idolize and say, oh, that, you know, he or she or they, you know, did this work. I mean, you know, I being from Georgia, I should say this, I grew up right outside of Atlanta. So there's a particular pride that I have in seeing the state finally flip uh, blue statewide. Um, and I've, you know, done a lot of political work there. Um, I think even with the, even with Stacey Abrams, like she's done amazing work, very happy to, you know, have her. Uh, in our state and have her leadership, but I am seeing a lot of people like, you know, post Facebook statuses and Twitter, you know, whatever they call them, tweets and, you know, change their profile pictures to Stacey Abrams. And I'm just like, you guys need to stop this. Like there, this is a really certain level of disrespect because there are thousands of organizers who have done this work long before 2018, long before 2016. I worked with Michael Thurman I remember the work I did for him for U.S. Senate in 2010 in Georgia. He got 39.5% of the vote. Like, and so honestly, like, I'll be honest, I, I, it makes me feel a certain kind of way to see all these people like, oh, thank you, Stacey Abrams, and changing their profile pitch. It's like this, this is incredibly disrespectful to the amount of people whose names we'll never know who have been doing this work for a decade. And so it's kind of like how we, 
it would prop up Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and Ralph David Abernathy and the civil rights movement. It's like, it's okay to, to understand and to acknowledge that you have a village and that a village has contributed to this work. I think the downside, there's no downside to that, but I think the downside as far as in how we think about that, it means that you then have to acknowledge an entire group of people. And then you have to acknowledge that you owe that group of people in some capacity, you know, policy and decision-making access that you can't limit to one or two voices that are supposed to speak for all of them. Because I think innately, all right, when you think about it and you say, oh, well, this was, you know, this person or that person, it makes it easier to then just have one person representative of an entire people moving forward. But if you really reckon with that and you well, say- it's easy to distance yourself from that person too. Exactly. Stacey Abrams is doing the work, so I'm good. Exactly. I don't have to, I don't exactly. Have to walk in. Yeah, Freaking no, phenomenal. <laughs> yeah, so I'm bringing up Stacey Abrams as not an example of somebody we should idolize. Mm. Uh, I mean, absolutely give her all the respect that she deserves, but as an example of somebody who decided there was a there was an issue and got involved yeah. and decided to solve that issue. Yeah. You know, and you know, as an example of anybody else can do that too. And it doesn't just take the one Stacey Abrams to do that. We should all be finding our corner of the world, of our community or whatever, and working to make it better and not laying back and expecting somebody else to do the work for us. No, absolutely. It takes the work. I mean, I've said this over and over again. I'm going to keep saying it. And honestly, you know, our intentions, and we'll lay this out more, you know, our intentions is to actually do this work. But, <laughs> um, you know, th there's no excuse why what we're seeing in Georgia should happen in Alabama, should happen in Mississippi, should happen in Louisiana, should happen in Arkansas. Like Black people, again, I'm going to keep saying, have largely not left the Confederacy. And so there's no reason we should not be competitive in states that have 30, 25, 20% of the population Black. Now, look, let me preface, I understand voter suppression, right? There's a reason why those states are still red. But we need to acknowledge that and start doing the work there. It's like, like Jamie Harrison, I think he lost his race by like 16 points. It's fine. It's a marathon, not a sprint. He's building organizing infrastructure. He is providing those people who have been doing that organizing for decades in Charleston and, and all over the state of South Carolina with the resources, with the training, with the organization that they need. And like by the end of the decade, there's no reason we should not be competitive and even winning some statewide races across the Sun Belt. And if we aren't doing that, it means we have not done a proper job in organizing and training and investing and so on and so forth. But to that end, I think we're gonna get a we're gonna get a chance to see if any of this is actually on the mind of these folks very early because we're gonna have two Senate runoffs in Georgia. Um, one with a black guy who's a reverend, uh, the other with a, an intelligent, you know, guy who I had a chance to work with before. And so, like, there's going to be a quick indictment here, right? If well, if it doesn't go well, and it'll be quick, you know, applause because they've already got their infrastructures in place. But you're gonna, they're gonna have to hire and bring on loads of people for the amount of outside money that's about to come in here, for the amount of, you know, staff that you know Leffler and and uh, and David Perdue are gonna hire. And so. I'm interested to see what those organizations and those dynamics look like for both Raphael Warnack and John Ossoff. Uh, these are going to be the two most expensive Senate races in the history of our country, like period. Um, 100%. I'm interested to see where this money organization and attention and staff hiring uh, goes for both those, both those campaigns. Yeah. So, I mean, so please tell us. I mean, I think Asif is pretty well known to most of the country, having you know been involved in the former race. But talk about the other. Talk about the good reverend. 
What do you see yeah. there? Yeah, so he's uh he's actually the the pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church, which is famous for um both Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his father, um, <clears throat> right in downtown Atlanta. Um, I, I I he doesn't have any sort of political experience, but I actually I'm not gonna say I kind of like that because I do think there is uh there's efficacy in having political experience. However, if there's anywhere where you're gonna find people who are going to succeed who maybe haven't been in government before. I do think the United States Senate is a good place because you're there at least for six years. You got the opportunity to build relationships. You have the opportunity to, to travel and get to know people across your state. But then one of the things I like to always dispel against, because I saw this on Twitter, is just like, oh, Warnock doesn't have any political experience. He's an organizer. If you're a pastor of a church, particularly in the South, you have organizing experience. You've built coalitions. You've built relationships with people. You know how to do politics. It's just a different name. You haven't been in Washington. You haven't had a D or an R by your name. Um, but anybody who's done organizing within a church context or led a church, you know, knows how to play the political game. Churches are political too. Totally different conversation. Um, but being a minister myself and involved in that, I know those are political entities as well. So um, I think he'd be an excellent, an excellent senator. And and you know, he's got relatively quality support um, across the state amongst Black people as well. It'll be interesting. I think one of the more interesting things that might happen and I hope we win both of them. I would be curious to see if maybe Warnock won um, and Ossoff did. And that could be for a lot of reasons. I think what Warnock has going for him, one, is Kelly Kelly Leffler is just awful. Um, I think she's more awful than David Perdue, which is saying something because David Perdue's awful. Like John Ossoff said, you're a crook. But two, um, Ossoff has been sort of nationally known and for three or four years. So he has to combat sort of that three or four years of being painted as you know, a socialist, a far left hack, so on, which is not very much so moderate. I think he would even tell you that. Um, where Warnock doesn't have to do that, if that makes sense. Like, there's just not as much, you know, vitriol already out there with some of the electorate. It's like, look, we're proven. We've got the votes, man. It's just about doing the work. But I'm excited to see um, Warnock as a candidate, more so on a on a more laser focus. Uh, well, and that you just went back to a point brought up earlier too that he doesn't have political experience. And yet is completely and utterly qualified for the yeah. position that he's running for. Yeah. So, you know, I think it would be very easy to dismiss if you wanted to, you know, it's all about whether you want to believe or find a reason to disbelieve. But, you know, you could say, oh, he's got no political experience. You know, that's a downside, as opposed to recognizing that the amount of relationship building that he's done, the way that he's navigated things and the connection that he has to the mm -hmm. community is perhaps a greater asset mm -hmm. than, you know, somebody who, you know, I guess went the traditional path, school board to state legislator to yeah. representative to senator. You Lawyer. know, I'm not going to say, yeah, like I'm not going <laughs> to say that he's not qualified or not, a, you know, a lesser candidate, you know, because of that. I'm kind of happy both these guys have no quote unquote political experience because you know Ossoff was an investigative journalist. You build relationships to do that. You find you find sources, you meet people who give you access to 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 record things and go in and meet people in the community if you're not doing that. Like I I I think and this is where I think we ran into a lot of trouble in Senate races where you talk about Teresa Greenfield in Iowa, Sarah Gideon in Maine, you can go down the list, but the, the same, I don't want to say the same tired trope, because I do think there's efficacy to having lawyers in the Senate, more in government in general, but it does skew towards people who have an attorney background. 
And lawyers don't often do a lot of organizing. They don't often do a lot of relationship building. Uh, I love the fact that we've got a Southern pastor, you know, who's running for Senate. I think we could do very well to have Southern pastors who are black in Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina, Alabama running for Senate. <laughs> um, that actually might be the blueprint to be able to do it. Women pastors as well. Um, so I, I hope like it's a, I hope it's a, it's a review sort of a reckoning of the time of the type, oh, excuse me, can't talk, of the type of candidates we recruit and thinking outside of the box, both from a racial standpoint, but also gender, but then also just like organizing experience standpoint. Stop thinking about, oh, this person is, you know, leader of this state house or whatever. Like those people are qualified and definitely hop in the race, but I'm, I'm okay to say it now. And people have been saying, oh, the DS did a good job of candidate recruitment. No, they didn't. We didn't win a lot of races. We should have won to be totally honest. Uh, and we've got to sort of take a look back at things and see how do we do this better? Uh, and what type of individual appeals to folks across these states, you know, where you want to win. And you yeah, know. so let me call out North Carolina. So you're no. from Georgia, I'm from North Carolina, you know, Tom Tillis versus Cal Cunningham. And on paper, Cal Cunningham looks like the guy to beat Tillis because- oh, Boy, I wonder. Yeah, because, you know, he's this, you know, veteran, he's white, he's, you know, he's handsome, I guess, I don't know, um, you know, whatever the, the basic criteria we usually have, oh, this will be the one to turn people out, you know, these are the people, you know, this is the one to get votes, you know, and, and I bought into it as well, and, you know, to be fair, you know, it's, what, 100,000 votes separating them? which yeah. you know, is a lot, but not a lot at the same time in context. Um, but what would have happened had we run somebody who was from the black community and energized the black community? Mm -hmm. Would that have changed things? Maybe we need to stop looking for the white wonder and looking for the people who've already made the relationship you know, within the communities you know, so it's not a matter of convincing anybody, it's letting them know I'm running, right? I'm already a member of your community, come on out. You know, that goes back, you know, to, to what we were saying, like, are we finding the right people? You know, are, or are we catering to, you know, the white moderates who we think are, you know, who we keep thinking as the party, are we going to be the one to change things and taking that black vote, the minority vote for granted instead of, you know, hey, this is your person. Yeah. I mean, I think we dispelled that myth a lot too. People talk about the blue wall of, you know, Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania. And it's just, you know, those things turned around and we won those because of folks in Milwaukee County, because of, you know, black folks in, you know, Flint and, and Detroit, because of black folks in Philadelphia. It's just, uh, it's like the writing is on the wall. And I think the, the biggest indictment of this is um, the lack of support that like a Charles Booker in Kentucky got and definitely a Mike Epstein in Mississippi. Like those, I don't care anybody said, I, I would say they were, they're winnable races. Now maybe they couldn't have been winnable this time around just because we've lacked the infrastructure and investment. Um, but those were two candidates who got virtually no support from the DS. Booker got none because they came out for Amy McGrath beforehand. Uh, and it's just like, those, those aren't the type of candidates we need to be investing in and propping up because like say Booker wins that primary that's a lot of organizing that's a lot of infrastructure building in Louisville and in Lexington and even if he didn't get over the line against McConnell 
that's a winnable Senate seat in 24 and 20. Like we got to have more of like a, a long game here. Um, and, and unfortunately like, like that's, 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 that's lacking. Uh, and, and so, you know, we can keep going on and on about this, but there, there are credible instances of what we're discussing, not happening this cycle. Repeatedly. <laughs> Repeatedly. And it didn't work. Yeah. You know, uh, I mean, why does Michigan not have a Senator that hails from Detroit? Like Gary Peters was cool and all, but like barely won. And we say this ass again. <laughs> right. So why are we not putting up candidates that represent community? I mean, that's the whole point of a representative government. You represent the communities that you come from. You know, I just. Too much sense. Too much sense. Uh, well, I mean, and that and the pushback to it is, yeah, but we know that the black voters in Detroit are going to come out and vote for the Democrat. We need to pick up the ones in the middle, the white ones who maybe don't want to vote for the, the black person. Yeah. And I mean, I get it. Like, logically, I understand where they're coming from, but I keep I think we keep seeing it doesn't work. It doesn't. And the biggest thing is like. When you pick a black person who people like like and respect, there are even more votes to get in Detroit and Milwaukee and Philadelphia and Atlanta than we're getting. <laughs> like, it's not like, oh, all the black people came out. Like, no, if you put the right candidate forward, there are enough votes in all these places to offset anyone who's going to say, oh, I can't vote for that candidate because they're black. Or they'll say, oh, they're a little too far to the left, which is, you know, sometimes cold for black, right? Like there, there are more there. Tacey Abrams says it all the time. There are more of us than there are of them. And that's just like true. And so any fear of like Abigail Spanberger, you know, I'm not a fan of her after a comment about, oh, defund the police, like, you know, hurt some of us and our um, races for the House of Representatives. And I want to be like, Abigail, your, your, your district is 18% black. Now, I don't have numbers on how many of that vote was black, but I guarantee you it's what got you over the hook or over the line. And for however many people you would lose saying defund the police, if we put a nice, credible black candidate up who's organized and know people in the community, they will offset whatever folks aren't going to vote for you because they're scared they're not going to have law and order. Like so, so it, it's 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 like well, and especially if we split the vote, right? So we can take it back to my rural North Carolina high school. Mm where I think we were 60-40, a very much white versus black. Like, I think we had one Latina in our class. That was the diversity. <laughs> like, it was it very wow. clearly 60-40, um, white to black. The black candidate wins the student body election mm -hmm. every time because all of the black students vote for them. Yeah. Maybe they pick up some white students. Maybe they don't. Yeah. And the white students splinter. Yeah. We could have figured this out in high school. You know, because it wasn't like I came to this realization, you know, two days ago. We knew it in high school. Right. Oh, yeah, the black candidate's going to win. Yeah. If we could figure that out in high school, why is it that we as a country or as a national party can't use that same logic? Yeah. We're going to get half of white women or at least 40%. We're even going to get like 20% of white men. So, like, if you turn out, and inspire minorities we well, we should dominate and have super majorities every single cycle like and i've been pushing back against this whole like idea because i said oh there are winnable you know senate races in 22 which there are and you know someone who i worked with offered like yeah but you know we usually lose seats in the midterm election i'm like nope number one 
We I'm lost not, seats this time. Wait, thank you. So that's number one, actually. Number two, it's just like, look, I, I'm not going to allow any, anyone to, no offense to anybody, but especially anyone white, to be pessimistic around our political future in my presence. Because if Black people can still believe in this democracy enough to not just go out and vote, but to put in the amount of sweat equity organizing sacrifice that it took to get this election done, there's no one who should be pessimistic about the future of America, just period. And so it's like, you know, Wisconsin has a Senate seat, a Republican seat open in 2022. We can get rid of Marco Rubio. We can get rid of Richard Burr. Uh, There's a Republican senator in Pennsylvania that's up in 22. Like, what I'm not going to do, and I'm going to start preaching this, I am not going to accept the idea that just because it's a midterm of an incumbent president, we have to lose Senate seats, we have to lose House seats. I'm not okay with that. I'm not going to accept that because historically that's been the case. And that's the case because historically we've suppressed the vote and not put up quality candidates to reach the base. And so that does not have to happen. We can begin to change history if we do things correctly. Hey, look at New Mexico. All women of color. Wonderful. Right. And, you know, why not? You know, somebody who's a member of a native, native tribe, his, you know, a Latina. Why not? Yeah. They can win statewide seats. So why not? (laughs) Makes too much sense. Uh, I think we'll leave it there for the day, but this is the base. Hire people who look like the folks (laughs) from the base. Uh, I guess we'll, we'll get on here Hire again. the folks whose votes you want. How about that? Mm, you belong like to the communities whose votes that you want. I like that. Let's leave it So there. show us your priorities in hiring. Mm. Thanks, Becca. Thanks.